<laughs> this is going to be terrible. I apologize in advance to everybody, but I'm going to F this up so many times on purpose. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Here we go. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Vagabond Actors, where we discuss the business, the craft of acting and everything in between. My name is Brian Casp. I'm with you from Prague, the Czech Republic. Joining me as always is my two wonderful co-hosts and acting coaches and teachers, Andrea Helene from Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Great to hear it. And from London, UK, Gary Conn. Hey, Gary, how are you? Hello, Brian. Great to be here. And we have a very, very special guest, one of my favorite people in the world. Joining us from Los Angeles today, it's showrunner and writer and executive producer, Sean Crouch. Hey, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian, Gary, and uh, is it Andrea? Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes, you're saying okay. that right. Andrea. For now. I'll screw it up again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. So before we get into talking to Sean about his career and what it is to be a showrunner and how he likes to work with actors, which we are all dying to hear about, we want to talk to everyone about what they've been doing in the last week or for Sean, the last little bit of time recently. So Andrea, what have you been up to? I've taught a workshop this past weekend and had just a really wonderful time, mostly with students from your program, Brian. We worked on Mm -hmm. self-tapes. I heard about it. You did. Yes. Well, it was, I had a great time. They were really lovely and attentive and, you know, they gave it a great amount of energy and they were enthusiastic with each other. So I had a really, really lovely time. There's always something for us to learn, as you know. So I went about it with the intention to learn myself about the workshop format for how long their attention would last in a full day format and to mm-hmm. find out really the kind of things that those students are most perplexed by and interested in. And so we talked about a lot of different things, but hopefully it was a big help to them. And I definitely saw a huge improvement in their self-tapes over the course of the day. So it was it was a good time. That's fantastic. I know that they really got a lot out of it, and I'm sure that you should do more of them. And I think they would really enjoy that. Thank you. I will. Yeah, great. And what about you, Gary? What have you been up to the last week? Yeah, this week I've been working with a client who is a regular on The Last Kingdom. I don't know if you know that TV show. Mm-hmm. And he plays this character, which is a sort of warrior priest or a priest warrior. I'm not quite sure which comes first. And the two things are going on in tandem. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to get it involved and work on these two qualities, the warrior and the priest. And, you know, his warrior qualities came fairly easily and straightforwardly to him and he could connect with that. Um, so we had to do a bit of work on the spiritual priestly qualities that he needed to draw on. So that was really interesting. And And not being religious himself, it was an interesting area to get into um, and really pin him down. Because when I was asking him questions about how he sees spirituality and all the rest of it, he was very vague and very general. Mm. So it was pinning him down on what his beliefs are and how he could sort of harness those into his role. Excellent. For myself, let's see, I'm about to go and start shooting and I've gotten 
two self-tapes to do. One I got yesterday and it was due on Friday, but I shot it today. And then I got another one today that's due on Friday and I'll have to shoot it tomorrow morning before I go off to shoot this video clip. So it's quite busy. And I think what I take from that is if you if you have until Friday, if you have like four days to do mm-hmm. your self-tape, don't wait till the last moment mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you have to use all of the available time to do it because you, your schedule just doesn't work out. But if you can, shoot them early so that you can deal with other stuff that comes up. Because, you know, I have this shooting, I wouldn't have time to do all of the tapes that I have to do in the time that I have remaining. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was very interesting was my partner for today, we were talking and he was talking about how he was feeling a little bit of a morass in terms of just doing auditions, maybe for parts that aren't what he would want to be auditioning for and feeling like he was just sending those auditions off and not really hearing much back and feeling like there wasn't really a lot going on, which I think a lot of people might be feeling these days. And this is just on the back of what we had talked about already mm-hmm. in the podcast and kind of what you were experiencing yourself, Andrea, from mm-hmm. the other side of it on Saturday, which is that if you're feeling like all you're doing is auditioning and and it's all self-tape, so you're not getting really any feedback usually, it's not a bad idea to look around online to see if there's an acting class that you can join. And maybe it's just a day-long workshop, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's a a short course, a few weeks or something like that, where you can join the class, even if you don't feel like you really need to work on some aspect of acting, but it's just a way to get moving, accomplishing something, Mm -hmm. to get some kind of feedback and to feel like you're pushing forward in some way, because it's really, really easy, especially if you're in lockdown, to feel like you just don't have any forward movement. It's almost like there's no reference points to feel like you're moving anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I recommended that to him. I don't know if he'll do that, but I just think that's a really healthy thing to do, even if you feel like you don't need to work on your acting because you have it all together, which I know I certainly want to get into a class myself. But Mm -hmm. um, so that that was something that happened today that I thought was worth sharing with people. Definitely. That's me. Sean, let's bring you into this. What about you? What have you been up to recently? First off, I think that's really smart. All of us artists need to mix things up. And if you're not taking a class, then take a class. If you are taking a class, do something else. You know, go read Shakespeare is what Mm -hmm. I do. Just do something. Something besides just self-taping and sending it off into the abyss. Yeah. Um, I have to, as a writer, as a producer, as a former actor, do all that myself too. So I think mixing it up is really smart. Yeah. Currently, I've noticed an uptick in the business uh, in the last couple of weeks, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I think we'll get back to some version of normal in the next year. Now I'm, I'm seeing oh, the light. Yes. Yeah. Um, there is a light uh, at the end of the tunnel or channel, as it were. <laughs> I had a very up and down week. I had a, a passion project, this comic book, one of the best comic books in the world that I've been working on for two and a half years with a lot of big name people. Best pitch I've ever done out of hundreds of pitches. And unfortunately, we did not sell it. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, I sold a show to Amazon. Another, wow. the, you know, so it was a little up and down, but that's our business. There was a, a time, I don't know, there was three or four years, I guess it was about 10 years ago, three or four years of my career where not a lot was going on. And I, I kept track of all the no's in my career. And in those four years, I had over a thousand no's and I had basically seven yeses. And those seven yeses were enough to give me a pretty nice career. So um, 
actors, it's worse. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that 1,000 no's is 10,000 no's mm-hmm. yeah. to mm-hmm. actors. So really it is just perseverance. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it was Churchill that said success is the ability to go from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> and it's I that it. enthusiasm that's difficult that I, I see, I hear in your friend's voice through you, Brian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's losing that enthusiasm is tough. So that's why I say mix it up and find other things to create that enthusiasm and, and keep your skills sharp, of course. But yeah. for me, it's even just mm-hmm. keep the motivation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Keep some light to go yes. back to. Yes. Something to keep me moving forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on, yeah. on selling something. Thank you. <laughs> so for, for actors, I mean, I know we want to talk about so much stuff and we should get into how you and I met Sean and, and what our journey has been as friends, but just so we know from your perspective, so you sold a show. So does that mean it's automatically going to happen? What happens after you sell a show? Is <laughs> so it- no, <laughs> no, this, okay. it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like winning the lottery three or four times in a row to get a show on the air. Um, right. First, you have to you you have to sell the idea in a pitch. Then you go through negotiations, which was what we were doing for the last two months. It can die in negotiations, and now I'm off to writing a pilot script, a backup script, and a bible uh, mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. for this piece. And then they will look at that. Amazon will look at that and decide if they want to start a mini room or a regular room or pick it up for ten episodes or whatever they want to do. So my job now is to write the very best possible pilot, backup script and bible. So they uh, it's undeniable. So then they want to so then they want to put a room together, a writers room together and yes. actually write more episodes or Yeah. This might be one that I end up doing all my I hopefully I'll have a writers room, but I may, I may end up writing all the scripts myself on this one. As yeah. well, uh, I have a partner, Hugo Nakamura is doing it with me and he'll be working on these scripts with me as well. So, and is it existing IP? It is. Or is it it's something called that you Yakuza? It's based on the Sega game of the yeah. same okay. name. So it is an IP, but I'm, I'm taking it and going to, we're going a different direction with it. Mm-hmm. Very cool. A little bit. Sean, I'm putting together a writer's room. How much say do you have in who comes aboard? In, in a scenario like this? Well, I have at this point, you know, 20 years into my career, I have a team of people that I love to work with. Mm-hmm. So if I can get as many of my team together, team that have, have worked on other shows with me in the past, I prefer that because we have a shorthand and we can be very efficient and move forward. I will meet other writers in the process, usually a few new ones as well. And hopefully my family grows. It's nice to have people whose talents and strengths you know so well, right? Yes. Absolutely. That cooperative Absolutely. atmosphere is just established right away. Yep. And they and I know I know our weaknesses as well. Yes. I have many weaknesses. <laughs> and I, I, I try to fill in the holes in my own weaknesses with writers who far superior to me. <laughs> And then I take credit for all of their hard work. <laughs> no, you don't. I absolutely you're, you're do. You're incredibly gen- generous. <laughs> no, but even you know, even if I'm if I'm the one at Comic Con doing the interviews, I'm really being interviewed for all of our work. But I'm the only right. one on camera. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, there are some showrunners who really take actual credit for their. <laughs> Right. I try. Just people know me better. They, yeah. they know that. No, you're I'm too not nice. <laughs> I know I it's know not, not your good. your image, but you're too nice. <laughs> this episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning 
in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, we Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Just to give you guys a little bit of backstory, so Sean and I met 22 years ago. 98? When... I was a temporary assistant at Sony Studios, and you were working for someone in the Sony Pictures Television current department, as I recall. Could have, I, I may have been temping at that point as well. You might have been a temp as well. Producers. So how do you this, go? It wasn't even Sony, by the way. It was Columbia TriStar. Oh, it was Columbia TriStar Television. That's right. They, it wasn't Tony. They went out of business, and then Sony saved them and, and came back. I mean, it was all under the Sony umbrella. But right. they, they changed their name to Sony TV probably in 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Okay, but it was at the Culver that's Lot. That's right, the mansion. Mm-hmm. The mansion, that's right. And so how do you go from being a temp or working as an assistant at uh, Columbia TriStar Television to, I think your first big job was like a, a coordinator on numbers, is that right? Or you had some Veronica Mars maybe before that? Even, but- even before that. I mean, it's a, it's a long journey. I mean, everyone's journey is different to their, to their destination, um, which I'm still not at. But little little side stops along the way. Right. Um, I started. Uh, I actually was a semi professional actor. I did Shakespeare festivals all over the country, mm-hmm. um, like repertory. Yeah, the repertory and, audition, and then you got hired to do. Yeah, to play usually to play two different roles in you know two different two different shows over the summer. So I was classically trained that way. But I even back then I knew I wasn't an actor. I wasn't good enough, honestly. Um, It's a very difficult job, much more difficult than anybody actually gives it credit for. But I, it was enough to teach me all the things I needed to do to be a writer, producer, director. That's where acting really helps, especially in college, because you can't just study acting. You have to study everything around acting. You have to study the text. You have to do research on every character you play. You have to become an expert. You know, if you're going to play a code breaker in World War II, you have to study the science of that. So it really made me a jack of all trades in college. I, I ended up staying almost six years because I loved it so much. Um, <laughs> learning all these different things. I have many different degrees. And then I came out and I got a job in production, working for the head of production at, at Columbia TriStar TV, and learned about this word showrunner, which is mm-hmm. a made-up word. You, you won't find it on IMDb, but it, it basically means head writer and head producer. And I knew that's what I wanted to do because I heard that writers in features, which is what I came out to do was to write and maybe direct features, that writers and features would just turn in a script and be done with it. And I'm more of a control freak than that. 
I wanted to have control of my scripts. So mm. I studied uh, at Columbia TriStar TV and I worked in almost every division there, business affairs and production and casting even. I worked mm-hmm. for the head of casting so I could learn that. I worked for the head of the studio. I worked in all the different divisions to learn what it was. And then I said, I want to be a comedy writer. So they put me on the Bette Midler show, which was for CBS. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I realized I don't want to work in the comedy world. I didn't, I didn't enjoy the writer's room. What was it about, maybe not that particular writer's room, but what was it about the writer's room that you didn't enjoy? I think, I think it's honestly, and I have a very thick skin, but I think honestly, it's just when you're in comedy, all comedy is at the expense of somebody else. And when you're in a room together, 20 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, you're constantly making jokes at everybody else's expense. And it, it just gets, it gets through, <laughs> you know, at mm-hmm. three in the morning, yeah. it finally hurts yeah, <laughs> um, or whatever. So you're like, this is not fun anymore. Yeah. I wasn't seeing my wife. We, we were newly married. I just, and then I worked around a little bit and got into the drama world and I realized, oh my God, this is great. It's like 10 to six. Everybody's happy. Everybody wants to go home and see their family. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Ironically in the drama world. And so that was Veronica Mars. So that was sort of where I broke through into the drama world. And then near the end of season one of Veronica Mars, Numbers on CBS hired me to come be a full writer. I was a script coordinator on Veronica Mars, learning how to write. They invited me to become be a full staff writer on Numbers. Mm. So that was... That was my long journey into uh, breaking through the first the first wall you have to break through. And as you know, as actors, right. it's, it's a never-ending line yeah. of walls. <laughs> You're constantly breaking through. I mean, maybe maybe Tom Cruise doesn't have to, but that's pretty much it. He's like the only yeah. person not breaking through walls anymore. Yeah, he has to create walls to break through, I guess. Yeah. He's, and, so, and Numbers is a procedural show, meaning that every episode is kind of structured in the same way. You have a case of the week, and maybe over the course of a season, there's a, a longer character arc that is more... what Serialized. Serialized. And you were there for seven seasons on Numbers. You know what? It was a great learning experience as a young writer, because everyone else was an EP on that show. I was basically the mascot of Numbers, and I'm perfectly happy with that designation. Um mm-hmm. It was great because I think I can break down Shakespeare, I can break down the text where I can look at every scene has a story, every act has a story, and then the entire play has a story. Mm-hmm. I felt like on numbers, when you do an episodic procedural like that, you can follow that same pattern because each episode is kind of a standalone. Even if we had some minor C stories that went the entire season, back then that was less so. Nowadays, yeah. you have to do serialize. It's much different. But back then it was great because every scene had a story, you know, in a beginning, a middle and an end. Every act has a beginning, middle and an end. And every episode had a beginning, middle and an end. Mm-hmm. So I felt very comfortable learning that way of writing, which kind of surprised me um, that TV worked the same way and film worked the same way. Mm-hmm. Now it's very different. Procedural is only on CBS right now. I think that's a mistake. And I think things are moving back towards I think they're finding, you know, a lot of these places like Netflix are finding that their procedurals, like their CSIs, they're putting on actually get a lot more views Mm -hmm. than other things. So I think procedure is actually coming back, which I think is smart because some people just want to tune in and just watch one episode and go to bed. Yeah. There's movement away from promoting so much binge watching and moving towards releasing things weekly. I know that that's a real strategy of Disney's. Yes. 
And it actually keeps people more engaged in mm-hmm. a way. Not in a way, absolutely. People, yeah. I mean, Lost would have gone one season without having a week in between episodes <laughs> where people could talk about theories. If you could watch the whole thing of Lost, you'd be like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed. But boy, did we put so many theories into it. We were so excited. Yeah. Every episode was going to be brand new because of our theories. I mean, WandaVision, I just went through that with WandaVision, coming up with theories in between every episode. And we yeah. talked about it for nine weeks. Now, when Netflix puts something on, people talk about it for three days and then it's gone. You don't right. hear about it. even Queen's Gambit, which people are talking about a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Even that's fading away. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, from our, right. and now what's the next thing? And thank, I, as a writer, I need the week. I need people to engage mm-hmm. and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, also, there's a lot of talk among, you know, writers, the podcast that I listen to or the the Twitter that the writers on Twitter that I follow about how short seasons are actually really detrimental to a writer's livelihood because, (laughs) because you're like a quote unquote normal season of numbers would be 22 episodes or 23 episodes, right? And that would take you the whole year. Yeah, that was a whole year show, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have a little break and you'd go right back into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, then, now and ten, 10 weeks, and you can't. Weeks. It's not like you can do something in between, really. No, no. I did. I did lore. I did six episodes, and it took me a year and a half wow. to do six episodes. You know, whereas numbers, we do twenty-four episodes. Now, I, I think there's a middle ground. I, I would love to do you know six episodes and ten episodes and do sixteen a year if I could get two different shows. But it's so rare to get more than. I mean, it's rare to get one show, mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. two. So yeah, yes, yeah. I would prefer longer seasons. Absolutely, I just did. I did 16 episodes on the 100, on the final season of the 100, and it was so exciting to actually work for nine months on a show and to really Mm -hmm. pour our heart and and energy into that. Well, you know, it's interesting because for me, a showrunner is the most mysterious because it's such a, the title has been developed more more recently than all the other archaic titles that we're used to. And and, and the showrunner is a real mysterious thing. And so I'm really happy to to listen and hear you go through these things that you want to talk about Mm -hmm. because I'm learning. And I think it's the one thing that a lot of people don't know about, actually. So it's great to be on the show. So don't take my silence as boredom. (laughs) (laughs) As curiosity... And engagement. <laughs> Same here. I, I'm, I'm with you, Gary. Andre, I'm with you. I, if I had to listen to me speaking this much, I just I would go on mute and just start looking on the internet. So I'm <laughs> just, <laughs> not happening for our listeners. Um, well, let me let me ask it this way then. So, uh, um, so on numbers, you were kind of you said you were like the mascot, right? So you didn't really. You were kind of learning your craft. You moved up the ladder on numbers from like a staff writer all the way to. A co-executive producer? No, I actually ended as producer. So mid-level. You ended up as producer. So so mid-level. And at a certain point, what happens, just as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, on the writing structure, is that as a as a staff writer, as a story editor, the the lower level positions in the writer's room, you mostly are responsible for writing. And then you get to a point where you become the producer or a supervising producer or a co-executive producer. And those in those situations, you're actually responsible for making sure that the show goes through production. Yes. And, it, and so, you know, it, it, it depends on the showrunner, actually. Right. On, okay. On how you, so they're kind of delegated to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, luckily on numbers, I had really great, I had, I had great mentors. Every executive producer on there wanted to teach. Mm-hmm. So I learned everything and was producing. I even was on set for my first episode 
you know, as a staff mm-hmm. writer. I had another EP with me at the time to make sure, but I did that for a couple times. And then once I hit, I think, executive story editor, once I hit that level, they just let me produce on my own. I knew what mm-hmm. I was doing. It was like my third or fourth episode. I knew what I was doing at that point. Just to break it down so you know what a writer's room looks like, you have the showrunner who is also an executive producer. When you start, you start as a staff writer, and then the levels are, and these are all basically writing levels. There's staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and then executive producer. There's also consultant, but a lot of times at my career now, I'm either executive producer or co-EP. I was a co-EP on The 100 because I wasn't the showrunner on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are sort of the levels. And then I prefer on my shows, I prefer my staff writers. I'll be on set with them or I'll have someone on set with them for their first episode. But after that, I expect them to produce Mm -hmm. as well because that is the job. Mm-hmm. And I expect them to speak with my voice on the set too, mm-hmm. meaning that if they say something, it's like it's coming from the showrunner. Now, if I disagree with it later, internally, we will discuss that. But externally, we are, we are a family and, yeah. and there is no break. Yeah. So let's say on numbers, and you can talk about how you do it more now as a much more experienced showrunner, but on numbers, when an actor comes to you with a question, yes, they sure. say, I have the problem with this line or the scene doesn't seem like it works for me. Because that can happen. On Sometimes actors will be emailing the showrunner incessantly. And I'm saying, <laughs> Brian, I've known people like that, where they are very involved in the process and kind of saying, this doesn't this doesn't make yes. sense to me, or I want to say this differently or yes. whatever. But so how do you deal with actors or how do you view actors who kind of do that? So I, I, I love it. I, I love, um, there's an, there's a UK actor named Ben Daniels who was on exorcist and he would send these novels and I would send novels back to him and uh-huh. discussing the text, um, which I love. I love really getting in like that. But on numbers, I learned there was two incidents that I can remember where I sort of learned what I like to do with actors. There are absolutely showrunners who say the words are unchangeable, Mm -hmm. you know, and that happens Mm -hmm. a lot. I hate that because I come from a theater background. I come from an organic background where you work the text Mm -hmm. um, and you find your character, you find your way that way. But I had one incident as I was learning. Uh, His name was Dylan Bruno, an actor. He played Colby Granger. And I had written a scene with him and two other FBI, and it was just a typical FBI making a raid. And he had a few lines in it, and the lines got cut for production before we went to set. But I left him in the scene, which was a bad mistake on my part. That does happen sometimes. But mm-hmm. And he just came to me very kindly and said, do you think I can say something in this scene? And when I realized he had no lines, I'm like, please, please do. And so he improvised something amazing and it made the scene better. Right. And that opened my mind to, oh, right. You know what? We're all in this together. We're all collaborating. We all want this to be the best thing on TV. No one's going into, very few people are going into sabotage a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we all live or die on the show that we're on. So we all want it to be the best. So the next experience I had was with Peter McNichol, Mm -hmm. famous actor, great human being, great, amazing actor. (laughs) Um, And everything he does elevates the material. At that time, though, the showrunner had rewritten some monologue or something in my script, which happens sometimes uh, less (laughs) happens less so as you get up in the levels. 
and I still remember, I can still, I mean, this was like 15 years ago, still out on the street in front of the set, sort of arguing with him because I was trying to protect what the showrunner had written, even though what Peter wanted to do wasn't that different, but it was better what Peter was doing. And we did, we had a, we had a pretty big argument, but we Hmm. both came out. I respected him better. He respected me, I think (laughs) better. Um, (laughs) And I really learned how to, how I wanted to deal with actors from that moment, because then he went in, he knocked it out of the park. And that's one of my favorite scenes of all time, because the words were so elevated by this actor. Hmm. And so from then on out, I, I made the decision that I will be, if I'm on set, I will sit there in those rehearsals and then I will listen. And sometimes I say, yes, let's work it. And sometimes I say, you know what? It's good enough. Let's put it on film. Hmm. But I really love to organically make things better with the actors. And you know, on a, on a show, you don't have very much time. Mm-hmm. You go to this scene while they're setting up lights, you run your rehearsal and then you talk about it. And then hopefully you have a few more chances to rehearse, but sometimes you have five minutes or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it really is in that moment. And then they come and then it takes another hour for them to set up lights and do hair and makeup and all that. And in that time, I'm looking at the script and the actors are usually doing their homework before they go in to perform the scene. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times I get very passionate. Uh, in the moment, I will jump up and be like, Oh my God, that was great. Or let's, let's try this or let's try something else. I love to try things. And I love when actors try things. Mm -hmm. Um, I prefer, you know, on a $10 million an episode budget, I prefer them to tell me ahead of times that they're going to try something. There have been some times where people tried something that were terrible and it cost us money and time, but I love it when an actor tries something because it almost is always better than what I have written on the page because they are very specific as, as Gary was talking about the specificity Mm -hmm. of the role. And if you don't know about religion then learn about it, so you can be very specific in what you think about religion, not just general ideas. And since they're so specific and working on just their character, it's better than me. Who I have, I have 20 characters dancing in my head and plot and themes and subtext, and they just have their one character. And so they are an expert above me, usually on their character. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love to work with them on set. That's great. How do you feel about, you know, because most of my career is like like we talked about, I think, before we started rolling, because you actually brought a show to Prague and you were nice enough to have me be in it um, for a day. First of all, yeah. Brian, I wasn't nice enough to have you. Remember, you auditioned and you couldn't get the first role you auditioned for, my friend. You earned that role. And you <laughs> killed that role. I know you're Thank being you. very kind and Aww. humble to yourself. You killed it. You were amazing you. in that role. And I'm still surprised watching. I'm like, oh, yeah, Brian's actually really good. He's not just a friend. <laughs> right, because we because you don't really know me. Well, I mean, you know, we are. Yeah, we know each other's friends. Built on, right. Yeah, well, it's not built on, uh, you on, know, a, a, show, a writer-actor relationship. It's right. built on just us being friends. Right. Clearly, but, because there was one incident where uh, you came in, you made a terrible joke to Gail Ann Hurd, the legend oh and God. producer, and then you backed out of the trailer very quickly. <laughs> I literally backed out. Which was one of the smartest things you've ever done. You, just, you didn't wait. She just looked at you with deadpan eyes and you backed out and left. I said, I think I hear my mom calling. I think it's dinner. <laughs> And I backed out. Yeah, that was that was a very. I've never known a trailer to get cold so fast. 
the, the legend Gail Ann Hurd. She she wrote oh. and produced Terminator. She did mm-hmm. Aliens. Yeah. She's done every movie. The Walking Dead, every TV show. She's amazing. She's yeah. the best producer on the planet. And uh, she does not laugh unless she really thinks something's funny, as Brian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, like, because sometimes people come in for smaller roles, you know, maybe a day or maybe a few days, and they might be struggling, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you try, obviously, you try not to cast the people that are going to be struggling, but someone might come on set and be struggling. So, is there other ways that you find that you can help them or to make it clearer to them or something like that? Yeah. I mean, my goal is always to have a very safe set where you can take risks. I learned this from uh, a director, Christoph Schriba, who's one of the best directors, if not the best director I've ever worked with who basically on the first day, he makes a major mistake in front of the entire cast and crew. And then he laughs about it and he comes back and he does it right the second time. And it basically shows everyone, hey, on this set, you can make a mistake. You can try things. No one's going to get mad at you because the showrunner and the director are both laughing about the dumb mistake that they both just made. Um, so for me, it's having a safe set is the most important thing for a lot of different reasons. It's been that way for me for 20 years, but you know, in the last five years, it's gotten even more important and I'm really Mm -hmm. happy to see that change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially for women on set, especially young women on set who don't know that they don't have to put up with this shit anymore. Mm -hmm. So that all goes to if someone's struggling, hopefully it's a safe set and they can work with me. Or a lot of times I'll have one or two on the call sheet, go over and talk to them because Mm -hmm. if you have a great top of your call sheet, they can do the heavy lifting for you in that regard. They can walk over and say, hey, don't worry about it, mate. We'll get it on the next take. We got this. And they always get it on the next take after that. Yeah. I mean, talking about the leads in the show, like number one on the call sheet, talk to us a little bit about how you find those people, the whole casting process from from your end. Because, you know, from an actor's standpoint, it's a very mysterious process. Like, what is the alchemy? What am I doing (laughs) wrong? And especially yeah, sure. now we have these self tapes, we send them off. It feels like it just goes into a black hole. So, yeah. so talk a little bit from your end where you're looking at the tapes and kind of constructing a cast. So first off, 99.9% of the time, you are not doing anything wrong. <laughs> I was going to say the opposite. No. You fucked it up. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Honestly, you aren't doing anything wrong. Once you've reached the level you're at, Brian and Gary and Andrea, you're not doing anything wrong. It's just there's a million other people that look like you, that act like you, all up for the same role. It's a numbers game, sadly. And I hate it. I hate it as someone who went through the audition process over and over, enough to knock me out of any, you know, I came to LA and I tried auditioning for a while. I'm like, no, I, I, I am not up for this. I just can't mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. I can't drive from studio to studio to studio five times a day and just get rejected over and over and over. What I see is I create a show. Let's say it goes to now casting. So here's the casting process. The casting director will see a thousand people for that role. I don't have time to see a thousand people. I wish I had time to see a thousand people or whatever they see. They will see a lot of people. I will then start doing producer sessions where I will come in with the top five, maybe, or top three. I will see those actors. Now, in the old days, this was in person. Now I do it on a lot, a lot of, even before COVID, a lot was being done on tape. I did a lot of casting on lore 
on tape because I was mm-hmm. in production in Prague and we were casting all the way from London down to South Africa in that time mm-hmm. zone, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I will have my favorites, but I will usually talk with other people in the room unless it's just me. Sometimes it's just me, in which case I have my favorite. And that's the showrunner's number one job is make decisions. You have to make decisions constantly and you actually have decision fatigue where I get home at night and I I can't even pick what I want to watch on TV or eat for dinner because I've made Mm -hmm. a million decisions all day long. Mm -hmm. But I will make my decision, say, that's my favorite. Then we (laughs) will take two or three of those people to the network and we will sit there through the network and that can be, God, that can be tough because you have your three favorites, you have your favorite. Usually I have one of those that is my favorite and we'll fight and we'll talk and we'll argue. And a lot of times we won't even get a cast out of that. Even though if I'm bringing someone to the network, all three of them would be great for my show at that mm-hmm. point. Because I'm not going to bring anybody that I don't want on my show because anybody you bring to the network can get cast. So anybody I'm bringing, they, they've already passed my test. You're not going to bring a spoiler? Like someone who you're like, this no. person is to make your to make your favorite oh, look better. God, some people do that and it's ridiculous. There's stories like, of that. Yeah, don't do that to the actor. Yeah. It's really fucking rude. Mm-hmm. Like, don't fucking do that to another. That's a human being that you're giving false hope to mm-hmm. in that moment for some ungodly reason. Sorry, that's really, I get really angry when, if people do anything that's not positive for the health of the show, that's for their mm-hmm. own fucking ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that needs to fucking stop. Um, no, everybody I bring, I would cast them all. Um, and be happy in that moment. Then if the network doesn't like anybody, we go back to the producer sessions and we go back to other people. And then a lot of times it's like casting directors go out and find more people that you have to find another thousand people mm-hmm. that you have to find. Mm-hmm. And we go through that process until we get number one on the call sheet. It almost always comes first. You get one, then you get two and you go through that process until you're just all exhausted. And by the way, in, in pilot season, it always ends up being the same. It's you go through that process. You're shooting on Monday. It's now it's yeah. Monday the week before. Yeah. You get everybody you want on Monday. And then the deals go right up until Friday night or Sunday night. Every mm-hmm. goddamn time the deals will go Sunday night. Like, I don't know if that person can come to set on Monday for their <laughs> costume fitting because we don't have a deal yet. Oh, Every time. I don't know. And I've worked in business affairs for a year and a half. I know how it works. Get the deals done a week ahead of time. Everyone's holding out for leverage, I think, in yeah. these moments. The agents mm-hmm. probably don't want to because they think that they're sure. going to yeah. get a better deal on another Absolutely. show. Yeah. Yep. Or a better deal if they wait till Sunday and they know that we're shooting the next week. Mm-hmm. But also the studios do the same thing. The studios hold a hard line in the same way that everyone thinks they have leverage when I just want to cast that I can sit and start get in my hotel room and start talking. A lot of times I'll, I'll do a table, like a mini table read in my room with like me and the one, two and three on the call sheet if we can mm-hmm. before we do the official where because the official one is, you know, there's 50 people there. There's people taking photos and videos yeah. of the first one and and you don't work the text like you do Mm -hmm. when it's just the five of you sitting around a table and you work the text Mm -hmm. and you go through every scene and basically I treat it like I treat a tone meeting. A tone meeting is something a showrunner does on the last meeting I do where I have all the heads of the departments and all the people I need to know, the director. This is not with actors because they're usually shooting another episode at that time. 
but it's all the other people. And I go through scene by scene and say, here's the tone of this scene. Here's the story of this scene. Here's what I need to make sure we get. Even if we fuck everything else up, make sure we get this. Then mm-hmm. I go to the next scene. And that those meetings can be three or four hours long because you go through the entire script. Mm-hmm. But I've already done that with my cast before that. Yeah. Because then we're ready to work when we get to set because you don't have, like I said, sometimes you'll have only five or ten minutes from rehearsing to shooting. Mm-hmm. And if you can do as much of that beforehand, it's better. Okay, I have a question for you about this is very selfish of me, but it's a question that I have come up against. And I think a lot of actors do when you feel like you're only getting auditions for a certain level of job, and then it feels very slow to go to the next level. Right. So if you're, if you're only getting auditions for day player jobs, and then it feels like it's, you're never going to get auditions for supporting roles. And then you're never going to get auditions for lead roles. Do you think that there is a certain quality that an actor needs to have to be number one or number two on the call sheet to be one of those, the heads of the acting department really in the, in the show? Hell no. No, it's just pure perception. Honestly, if tomorrow you audition, you get number one on the call sheet tomorrow, you are now number one on the call sheet. You didn't change. The perception of you changed. That's right. all. And it's the same thing I go through as a writer. I could not get, you know, I couldn't get into genre. It took me three years to finally get into sci-fi and fantasy stuff that I really And now you're to that do. guy. And now I'm that guy. Then I got into horror. Now I'm a horror guy. Then I got into show running. Now I'm a showrunner. I didn't change. I mean, I, I think I've gotten better. I've worked harder. I've gotten mm-hmm. better in that time. I have more experience. But I'm, I'm the same guy. And you're the same guy, Brian. And at some point, you know, you get that one or two on the call sheet, then you're one and two on the call sheet. And then all of right. a sudden people look at IMDb and see there's your picture and there's your name. And now your perception has changed. It's not, right. it's not your skill level or talent level. Once you're, I, I really truly believe when you're acting at the level you're acting at, Brian, you could easily be one and two on the call sheet. You just need that part mm-hmm. to come your way. Well, you just need to write it, um, Sean. So, you know. <laughs> I did, right? You didn't get did. it. And I had to give you number seven on the call. Okay. So, I know. You know. I, I, I know. I, I fucked it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, kind of a follow on from that. I think with actors who are trying to second guess what casting directors and producers and anyone else involved in the casting process wants. So I'd like to ask you the whole thing about making choices and standing out and all the rest of it. And when you're looking over these tapes, whether it's further one and two of the call sheet or maybe a bit further down, it's, and it sounds like a silly question because you're looking for the someone who is suitable for the character, obviously, but, but is there something that is more dominant that stands out? Is it like, I need them to really be understanding that this scene is about this and I want them to just play that objective rather than getting involved in the the character and all of that stuff. So, I mean, is there anything that you first need to see when you are going through tapes of actors? Yes. (laughs) Sorry. That's a great question. It's a great question because it is, what we do is so subjective, all of us. None of us are making widgets and we can look at our widgets and say, my widget is better than your widget because I have five stars on and you only have four stars on yours. Right. It's more measurable that, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So for me personally, and this is my, what I'm, I mean, (laughs) I wish I had an exact answer. And I know, and, and the funny thing is a lot of casting directors, they don't know. They don't know. They'll read the same script that I wrote and every actor that I see will make the wrong choice because the casting director sort of coached them into making what I thought was the wrong choice for the scene. 
Mm-hmm. And then some casting directors are great and give me sort of what I want. I'm looking for so many different things. I'm looking for an actor who has done their homework and I feel has understood the scene as written. And I know that actors, I know a lot of times you get one scene and you don't know the subtext of that scene before or after or what it is. So whatever you can dig out of that scene, like you're digging out of a much better writer than myself. I I, want to stop referencing Shakespeare because, but that's how I learned how to dig through the text was digging through something like that, which didn't have a lot of subtext. I try to write with a lot of subtext. So I'm looking for a writer that's done their homework. And I usually can tell. Um, And sometimes I'm looking for maybe a little bit different choice, which is odd to say because you've only seen the one choice when you're auditioning. You know, you've seen the one script, the one scene. And sad to say, if I watch 30 tapes, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of the same choice 25 times. And sometimes, and that's the choice that's on the paper. And sometimes it is that one choice that's just a little, it, it still is on text, it's still on the scene, but there's a little... Like they, they put their personality into it. And even on self, now when I'm, when I'm in the room, that's the best. Because when I'm in the room, yeah. I never let a scene go. I work that actor. Mm-hmm. I give them notes and then I see how they respond. Because I, that's to me the most important thing. If I'm going to be on set with this person for five years, I want to see how they respond to my notes. And if they can take my notes and if they can bring it up to what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. On a self-tape, I'm looking for if I can see any of that there. If I can see any of their personality come through, is this somebody I want to work with? Because by then, usually the five people I'm seeing at that point on a self-tape, they're all really good and they all look alike. And I'm looking for that one that might just pop a little bit more, or my wife will watch with me, the one that pops for her just a little bit more. I wish I had a measurable thing to tell you, Gary. I don't. <laughs> no, but it's it's really interesting because there is a slight difference between being in the room and having that self-tape because in the room, like you said, you can work with them. And I'm always saying, make a strong choice that is clear. And even if it's the wrong choice, they can at least see that you are being creative and perhaps, and I don't know whether you agree with this, but but then they can work with you. Mm -hmm. You give them something to work with. Don't wait to be told what to do and don't come in expecting to be directed, but offer. And then perhaps you'll go, well, you know what? It's a bit left of center here, but you know what? Try this and try this. And, And through that, you may impress. Yes. Gary, 100% what you just said. I want every actor who auditions for me to hear that before they come to audition. Seriously, that's exactly, make a choice. Make a strong choice and make it clear. That's the other thing. Some people make a choice, but I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. It just looks weird. Yeah, generalized. Specific. Yeah, it's often generalized, isn't it? Yeah, being Mm -hmm. specific is the key. Mm -hmm. Yep. Have a point of view. Look, I need that as a writer myself. When I go pitch a show or I come in to take over a show, I come in with a very strong POV. Sometimes I don't get the show because they don't want my point of view. They don't want my take on it. I've lost many, many jobs, but the ones that always hurt me the most is when I didn't have a strong take and they were just – it was mediocre. And they're like, yeah – Sean was just mediocre. I would rather be the best or the worst. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's different to be turned back because mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit in with their taste. But that doesn't right. mean it's not good. That's different to not doing the work to at least offer something. I mean, that's correct. Just, yeah. Correct. Because that's what I want to see, because I, I expect you to do your work on set. 
Mm-hmm. Every single day, I expect homework to be done. I expect you to come to scene knowing your lines and knowing what the scene is about. And if that doesn't happen, we have a problem in that mm-hmm. moment. And that's happened a few times. It's happened on a few shows where uh, usually it's a guest star comes in. They don't know their line. Because some people come and they, they, they just look at the script for the first time at that rehearsal, knowing that they have an hour to go learn their lines. That doesn't help your other actors who are off book. And I've had that happen a few times. And luckily... Mm-hmm. I've almost never had to deal with that because one and two on the call sheet will deal with that on a good show. They'll take that actor aside and say, next time, learn your fucking lines. It's amazing that that still happens. I mean, Mm -hmm. interestingly, you should say that is I'm working with a client on, I can't say because I'm on an NDA, but it's one of the two big streaming companies. Yeah, Um, She's working on a TV series and this is a big deal for her. She's just a regular on on a forthcoming series. And uh, some of the actors who are bigger roles than hers are struggling with their lines. And she is gobsmacked by it. She's amazed. And she's she was like, I was I was so angry because they're fucking things up and the scenes having to be redone. I'm getting I'm not getting in my flow. And you know, she said I took him aside and I told him. And I was like, Well, good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah. But be and careful. that's tough for her. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, be, because her, bu- her, her bubble's being burst because this is the biggest show she's been on. And it's like, I don't know, I, this is incredible. And she's also having problems with one of the actors. And it's like, don't get involved in directing here. Just try and work with it because mm-hmm. there's other people there that will do that for you. Yeah, I feel for her. That's really difficult. She's in a really difficult position because she can't, if she has nothing to react to, she can't act. Yeah, and if they're not giving her anything, she has nothing to do, and it, it yeah. will it could port unfairly on her, which is too bad. Uh, and that that's not allowed on my sets. <laughs> well, that's great. She was on the phone to me at eleven o'clock last night, going, "What do I do?" And I'm like, "Okay, let's run through all the imaginative things that you can use to to work off this guy who's giving you nothing." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's too bad. I mean, she's just unfortunately she just has to put her head down and work, and yeah, and and get to the point in two or three years when she's that person on the call sheet and she can she can actually protect then that you know that other actor from that yeah yeah yeah. that's 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 one reason i've tried to do it where i can be someone who can protect on set hopefully you know yeah and everyone follows then you know you create an atmosphere that everyone buys into and so that's something you need to look for when you're hiring your your number one and two on the call sheet too you know if you you get a great one and two on the call sheet you will never have a problem on set trickle down Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Leadership. People yeah. in the business will know this, but I think I don't think a lot of people outside of the business know that the lead of a show, like that number one on the call sheet, really does function like the head of the department of the acting yeah. department, mm-hmm. and they really are responsible for setting that tone. And if you have someone at the top of the call sheet that is more selfish or more concerned about their own image or their own career and really doesn't care about the rest of the show, which can happen. then the whole show feels kind of not very fun and not it's you're like what are we what are we doing here and you know and if you're not the type of personality that wants to lead at least lead through example at least you know work and that and that those are the best actors they just they put their head down they know their lines their workhorses every single day they give it their all every single day and then they go home that's fine too that i I love you don't have to be gregarious about it yeah right Right. Some people are gregarious. That's great as well. But just lead through example. That's the most important thing. Sean, can you talk to us about some of the auditions that you've witnessed over the years that still stick with you? Something about them or something that that 
maybe it illuminated something in the writing or just, is, do you have any favorite, uh, auditions that you've experienced? Yeah. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a great question. Let me think about that. I know when I was casting for my episode of lore for Jack Parsons, which is the one that Brian was in, I basically had three guys for the role of Jack and all three of them were very different and all three of them were great. We ended up going with Josh Bowman, who was so wonderful as one on the call sheet because he's just, he's a good person. You could tell, you could just tell he has just kind eyes and that he was going to be great on set. And what's always funny to me in these auditions is when I'm doing something with like a lot of UK actors, but it's for American audiences or American is I didn't even realize uh, that Josh was from London, you know, <laughs> and, and that that happens to me so many. And I should know better being in the industry. I should know that <laughs> that the American accent is what it is, mm-hmm. especially when I'm casting out of the UK. And so that's always a shock to me when they come on set and all of a sudden there's this English accent <laughs> and my head explodes a little bit. Like, Wait a minute. Um, th- yeah. <laughs> it's always it's always really fun though too. I'm like, "Oh my god." And to see them just they're really going at it with their American accents and and they're really in each other's face and it looks like they're about to get in a street fight and it feels down and dirty American and then we yell cut and they both pop off and it feels like it's tea time now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's one of my favorite experiences just to it makes me laugh every time. Well, surely the English actors apologizing after the uh, after the Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Or, or both of them, both of them race to apologize to the other. <laughs> yeah, I do apologize. And, and, and then you have Canadian actors who say sorry, sorry all the time, but that just means fuck you in Canadian. So you, you also learn that very quickly, that their apology is a very different apology from the British actors. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, Andre, I've never had that moment, I'm sorry, of, of you know, someone coming in and like, in full costume or any of that. I've never, I don't know if that would work on me, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I do appreciate, I can tell sometimes when people have understood the scene enough that what they wear could almost be a costume, but almost be like, that's what they wear normally anyway. (laughs) If that makes any sense whatsoever, you know, like a guy in a suit. Have you ever heard an actor say a line that you wrote and, and then you go, Oh wow, that is much, much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, you know, sadly, maybe that, that happens that, in an audition. That happens to me a lot. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I wish I was the the best writer in the world. That never happened. But no, it's I have my my little my sides sides are you know little mini scripts of that day's work that they print out the ads print out and give you. I still keep I, I have almost all my sides, and you can just see where I'm furiously scribbling away and crossing out my shitty line and putting in their better line that that happens a lot. That's, that's what I know I'm with really good actors when I'm doing that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've, I've even seen it and, and I've done it a few times and I've, I've raced to hire and I've actually got into fights about this when an actor will do that in an audition and I will see in an audition the better line or the better version, the way they say it, the way, even if they're saying my words exactly, mm. Sometimes it knocks something to me like, oh man, that line sucks because I made that actor trip over their tongue because of the way I put those words together and I'll rewrite it. And a lot of times I will fight to hire that actor mm-hmm. because they, you know, they, they pointed it out without being a jerk about it. You can just see in their acting that the line was shitty. They're like, who the fuck wrote this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Which of my, which of my minions can I blame this one on? Yeah. It was always me. Every time it's me. Yeah, every time. 
every yeah. time. Every time it's bad, it's me. Is it sufficient for you to see five actors from your casting director? Do you ever feel like I really, I really need to see fifteen because I want to, I want to think outside the box. Yeah, especially with self tapes. With self tapes, I watch twenty or thirty or forty. Mm-hmm. You know, they send me here's here's the top three. And I say, send me the top 30. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see. A lot of times that's early in my relationship with a casting director too. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get on the same page and then I only need to see the top three because I know that she's sending me the top three mm-hmm. of what I think is the top three. And what I think is the top three is going to be very different than everybody else on this podcast right now. Think is if, if we watched 100 auditions, I guarantee you we would all come up with a different top three. (laughs) Maybe maybe there might be one person that crosses in, but you know, the talent at this level is so high that uh, yes, you can cast poorly, but for the most part, there's a lot of great talent out there and you can get, even if you don't see everybody, you're going to get someone great almost for every role Mm. nowadays. Mm. From a writer's point of view, is there anything you wished producers and executives understood better and then from a producer's and executive point of view, is there anything you wish a writer understood better? Because you, you kind of deal with both. So does that make sense? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, writer, absolutely. Yes. As a writer, from a writer's point of view, is there anything you wish executives understood better? Yeah, subtext. Mm. Cool. I wish they I wish they understood subtext better. I mean, just, just in general. I mean, it's just not the, – the problem with executives is not that they don't understand subtext. It's that they're reading 10, 20, 30 scripts a day. You know, and they're doing they're doing a whole bunch of other things. They don't have the time. I'm sitting there working on a script for a week, and they have they put you know 30 minutes into it. So I wish they had more time, which we just don't have. I wish we had more time to to go into it more and to talk about the things I care about, theme and subtext, and a lot of the stuff that you don't see on screen, or if you're lucky, we'll see on screen. You know, and on these big shows, I think that's where something like Wandavision actually it helped that it was nine episodes over the they made it over like three years or whatever. They had time to go into all those different things that they needed to know for the show. From the other point of view, and this is what I this is what I train my writers to do. I train them to produce immediately because there's just a lot of times you spend weeks on a scene that's going to get cut in post production. I have a great writer. Her name's Alyssa Clark. Brian knows her, I believe, um, who was an editor in her career. She started as an editor for, you know, the first five years of her career or so. And she's brilliant because we'll be debating a scene in the room. You know, we'll be arguing for hours and she'll just put her hand up and I'll say, yes, Alyssa. And she'll say, you guys can keep talking about this scene, but it's (laughs) going to get cut in post. So (laughs) let's move on. And as soon as she says that, I'm like, yep, moving on. Uh, and which is why she's a great showrunner, you know, at this point as well, because she knows, she just knows that when you get into post, that's your next rewriting. Hopefully you're not rewriting very much, but with CG and with your composer, you're doing everything you can to bring the episode up another 50%. Cool. And, you know, along with that, just not to put words in your mouth, Sean, but like, I think one of the things about getting the writers into a production environment early is so that they are writing things that are producible. Yes, you know, absolutely. They, and yeah. they and they understand what happens when you get on to a location that you scouted and everything was great and then you get there and it's something goes wrong or you actually the light is better when you're shooting yeah. in this 
part of the location instead of that part. And so the whole thing was an indoor scene and now it's an outdoor scene and just everything is changing all the time. I think it's very good to, as a writer, to think about that as you're writing for television. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You have to know how to pivot on the day and and in, in prep as well. You pivot in prep and then you pivot on the day. Sean, can I ask you, in your recent experiences, are you shooting any scenes of intimacy? And have you had the opportunity yet to engage an intimacy coordinator on set? I haven't yet on this. I love the idea of it, but I haven't used that yet. But I think it's fantastic Mm -hmm. because, again, I think having a safe set is the most important thing. And I've had to close sets Mm -hmm. uh, before, even to myself. Again, in this case, if it's a young woman, I will even tell them that I will not be there, you know, for those things. I will be away. I'll make sure she knows that I'll be editing it. So I'm going to see all of that. But in the moment to give that safety and to have into and to have an intimacy coordinator, I think is so important. And I want that in all of my shows moving forward that need that sort of job. It's a brand new job. And I love it. I love the idea. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, Because we don't need any more of these Marlon Brando situations, or John Landis, or any of these murderers like John Landis. Mm. How much does politics or the political atmosphere, the political negotiation that goes on between all of the moving parts in your work, how much does that impact you or how much energy does that take for you to deal with these days? I mean, a lot. It, it need, And it needs to be. It needs to be something that you're thinking about um, all the time when you're on mm-hmm. set. It's a big deal. And I've had problems. I've had misunderstandings where I've had to bring people over. And I always bring director and, you know, first AD over and to, to discuss it and to make sure that people are heard. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as showrunner, you are the boss. So everyone has to listen to you. Mm-hmm. It's their job. But showrunner doesn't have to listen to anybody. And, and as you move down, various people. So for me, it's the main thing to know that I'm listening or if your problem is with me, which has happened as well, that somebody else is there to listen mm-hmm. and to make sure that you're heard and any problems you have will get fixed. So far, I think, you know, things have gotten fixed, but I hate that. And it's a tough thing, but you have to think about it. And it should be part of a producer's job. Mm-hmm. In TV, that means it's part of a writer's job. Writing is such a small part of making a TV show, <laughs> oddly enough, um, after a while. <laughs> When you get up to a certain level, certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, staff writer, basically, I just wrote all the time. Showrunner, I write maybe 5% of the time. And the rest are phone calls and being on set and talking to people and working with people and uh, politics, all of that. Mm-hmm. Especially on a big show, if you're asking for $10 million an episode, you're asking for $100 million a season. That's a big investment they're putting into you. And so you have to be able to respond to everybody mm-hmm. and in a polite, hopefully polite and efficient way. At this stage of the work for you, like what are the moments or the pieces of the puzzle that still get you the most excited, like little boy excited, just beyond getting... <laughs> I still, uh, every time I, you know, I've, I've had deals at Sony. I've, every time I, I drive onto a big Hollywood lot, mm. I still get excited. Like, Oh my God, I'm in Hollywood. <laughs> I love, and probably because of the, my theater background, I really love the first few takes, mm-hmm. you know, when you're shooting, I love it. And when it comes together and the actors are on and the cameras on and the crew is into it, 
God, I get passionate. I mean, you'll, I mean, the, my crews make fun of me because you'll, you'll hear if you're shooting a scene far away from Video Village, where we all gather, you know, writers, producers, we'll, we'll watch with the director and the DP a lot of times to make sure it's all there and it looks good. And you'll hear if a scene goes really well, you'll just hear from me way off in the distance, like, <laughs> and then I'll run up and I'll just be like, I'll just want to hug everybody and, and just be like, hey, great job. Um, so I love that moment. That moment is just exciting for me. I get really passionate about that moment. Mm. Um, and then the new moment that I'm enjoying now that my children are old enough is to be on the couch watching something I've written with them, uh. especially if I've written it with them in mind. Um, I did that with the exorcist and my son. I did it with the hundred and my daughter and there's no better feeling in the world, especially uh, my kids will mock me all the time, but every now and then they'll be like, dad, that was really good. And that is, that is the greatest thing I'll ever get from anybody ever is the dad. That was, that wasn't so bad. (laughs) 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 I'll take it. Oh man. That's beautiful. Is there something that you are, like an opportunity that you haven't gotten? I really like TV. I like TV because I like being a showrunner. And I like, even if I'm not the showrunner, I like the way TV fits my momentum. You know, you come up with an idea and it's Mm -hmm. on screen three months later. Mm -hmm. Whereas movies, you can sell a movie and never see it, or you'll see it in 10 years from now, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I really like TV. I, I am in the feature space. Um, a little bit, but not not very much. TV is where I like to be. I'd love to create a show that goes for five or six years and have that family build up um, and have that experience. It's a weird it's a weird experience on shows. You know, people get really depressed when a show gets canceled or a show ends, and it's doubly depressing for me because I have to say goodbye to the characters, but I also have to say goodbye to the actors and the mm. crew and the family that we built up around. I have a picture that was a prop on The Exorcist that's a picture of the family of all the actors on The Exorcist, and it's up in my house with all my family pictures mm. because they were, it was a very intense time and they were a family to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that feeling too. I love that feeling of, it's almost like camp. You go to camp and you really fall in love with everybody. Yes. Amazing. Sean, thank you so much for being here and for sharing so much wonderful insight into the whole process from your point of view. Mm. And honestly, I can't wait for all of COVID to be done because I think you guys were supposed to come to Prague for a visit. Yeah, I love Prague. I want to get another project there. I I love the people there. I could live there. My family could live there. I love you. Prague. Could you could? <laughs> yeah. We would love to have you live here and do shows here and and all of that. But in the meantime, to tide us over, what have you watched or experienced in the past little while that you want to recommend to people? I have three things for the actor. Okay, um, or two things really. One, I think everyone should read the comic book, The Wicked and the Divine. It's just. It's just one of my favorite comic books. That has nothing to do with anything. I just love it. Um, (laughs) Movies. So here's a recommendation. You've all probably seen this, but I think it's one of the most finely acted pieces of media that nobody ever mentions about the acting. And that's Galaxy Quest, (laughs) which is a movie from 20 years ago, maybe. But the ensemble acting on this show, and what's great is it's about basically a show within a show. It's about a bunch of TV actors who have to become real heroes. Mm-hmm. And from an acting point of view and from a writing point of view is it goes from full-on almost Mel Brooksian parody to actual Star Wars, Star Trek level intensity 
real film at the end. And the actors have to make that transition as well. Mm. They go from real people living in our world to supernatural heroes, basically, by the end. And the performances, I think every performance is a gem. But Tony Shalhoub made a choice in that movie to play his character very differently as written. And I'm not going to give away what his choice was, but it's pretty obvious halfway through as he's munching on things and everything's kind of just, he takes things naturally. The choices he make are so clear and specific Mm -hmm. and different from what all the other actors are doing. And I I would say that about every actor in that movie. Mm. Um, And I think it's something that actors should watch because it feels like such a popcorn movie. But I think the performances in that movie are excellent. And then my final one for TV. um, I don't know if you've, have you discussed the flight attendant on this, on this podcast? I don't think we We haven't yet. I think it's written very well, but I think the performance, especially from the lead actress, Kelly Cuoco, Uh Kelly Cuoco. I don't even know how to say her last name. I think it's a tour de force, what she does. She goes on such a journey on that. And it could be very difficult because she's in her own head a lot of the time. She talks to a dead person a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. She's going through. She goes through everything. And that show could have been ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. if the performances weren't where they are. And yeah, I think it's, the performances are she, excellent. She grounds it. Yes. I think she's a producer on that too, huh? Did she help produce that? She did. She optioned the book. Mm-hmm. Good for her. It was excellent yeah. show. So those are my re- my two recommendations for Great. sort of down the middle media that's still very enjoyable, but also I think uh, actors can learn and writers can learn a lot from both of those pieces of media. Mm-hmm. I know I have. Fantastic. Andrea, what about you? I have started watching the Israeli series called Fauda. This is from, I think, 2015, so a lot of people know it already. I believe they had three seasons. And I find it really interesting. It's you know about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the style is not super showy. It's thoughtful. Obviously, there's great tension in it and some really lovely performances. So I find that's very interesting. It's a different, it's a really different color. Like my husband was watching it, and I was in the room, and I didn't want to really pay attention because it felt so intimate, and I knew that I was going to have to pay close attention to it. I was going to have to go fully into the story. I couldn't just bop in and out. So this past week, I've decided to pay attention, and I like what I see. So that's my recommendation, Fauda, F-A-U-D-A. Where can people find it? I believe it's on Netflix. Okay. What about you, Gary? Cool. That's Yeah, that, these are good recommendations. Well, this week, I've gone back in time, and I re-watched Being There by, with oh. Peter Sellers. Mm. Oh, love that movie. <laughs> so good. It's so good. And for those out there who haven't seen it or know about it, in basic terms, a simple-minded gardener who's led a very sheltered life, and the guy he works with dies, and he's put out on the street with no knowledge of the world except what he's learned from television. And one thing and another, he ends up being an unlikely trusted advisor of a powerful businessman and an an insider in Washington politics. And it's a satire, the sort of ignorance of the ruling class, but it's a very charming, poignant movie directed by Hal Ashby. And it's we're so used to Peter Sellers, you know, tumbling down staircases and karate chopping and all of that stuff, which is brilliant in The Pink Panther and all of that. But in this, he's very subtle and it's almost beatific in his performance and his Mm -hmm. childlike quality that he brings to the character. Mm -hmm. And, And he comes out with some great lines because of his childlike manner and intelligence, if you like. And some of the lines he comes out with are really cryptically meaningless remarks, but <laughs> he hangs around with 
take them to be really serious. And one of them is like, as long as the roots are not severed, all is well. And it's like, <laughs> he's a gardener. So he's talking sort of gardener speak. And he, he, he spits out stuff that he's learned from televisions, sort of global speak and phrases that he's picked mm-hmm. up from televisions. And everyone in his circle uses this as, as really sort of, you know, as the oracle, they treat him as the oracle <laughs> and they make decisions in, U- in US government based on this. So it's, it's a fantastic movie, but his performance is very charming and very moving and almost beatific. Like I say, there's a beauty to it. Oh, I'm so glad you recommended it. I haven't seen it in so many years. And for our listeners who are too young to have been around when it first came out, I, I second the recommendation. And it was really a cult hit fairly early in, in my memory that when it came out, people were just aghast at his performance. And it was the talk. And it's definitely worth viewing. Yeah. yeah. And he's a revelation. Peter mm-hmm. Sellers is just remarkable. He's amazing. Has one of the, I, I think, I mean, it's really funny. Too. I mean, there's yeah, just, really. just him saying, I like to watch is one of my favorite <laughs> jokes of all time. It's just brilliant. It's just a brilliant Zen movie. Yeah, it is really Zen in a way. Yeah. And, and how we, um, the, you know, the ruling class is they, they go, what's your name? And he says, Chance the Gardener. But they interpret it as Chauncey Gardener. Wow. <laughs> <What> a, <laughs> he coughs. He, he coughs. He's drinking water or something and he coughs in the middle of it. And so he... He chokes on 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 it. Yeah, they turn it into a wasp name. Oh, yeah, he's Chauncey Gardner. You know. <laughs> what about you, Brian? What you be? What have you seen? I was thinking that I haven't mentioned a podcast that I really enjoy listening to, and I think it's a really great podcast for people who want to hear more, uh, not just performers talking about their experience, but also executives and casting directors and people like that. And it's industry standard with Barry Katz, who is a, a manager of comedians. So he's more on the agent side, but he does some really great interviews with not just performers, but also executives and casting directors and and people like that. So industry standard with Barry Katz. And then last night I was listening to the Anna Ferris podcast, which we've mentioned on, on the show quite a bit and we love. And she was talking with Brie Larson and Jesse Ennis. And among all of the talk that was nice, but not so related to acting, they had a very interesting discussion about the audition process from their point of view and how they really kind of struggle with the whole idea of auditioning and feeling insecure and feeling shame and all that stuff. And I think it's really good to listen to people that are on top that you would look at and think they're really at the pinnacle of the acting world and listen to them being insecure. And it gives gives hope to people that feel like they're not at the pinnacle uh, and that the insecurity is it's all over the place. Brian, I just listened to that today and you know, she they yeah. were making a point that, that's the same point that Sean was making earlier about the numbers game. You know, she literally, mm-hmm. Brie Larson goes down a list that she's put together of all the projects that she auditioned for that she didn't get. Yeah. And it's great to hear that because it's that perspective of how many times she went up to bat and she just acknowledges that she just refused to give up. She just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and going for it and trying yeah. and trying. And it's a, it's a very good reminder sometimes that this is a key component 
in the success right. of most people in our field. There are a few people who may right. fall into it a little bit, but for the most part, it takes a great deal of dedication. And yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, I mean, I know we're kind of in a different segment right now, but talking to Sean and listening to Sean, because because yeah. as an actor, you come onto set, especially as a day player or, or a guest star, you come onto set and the showrunner is, you know, the big guy in charge or the big the big lady in charge. And, and I think even with those people who are in charge, there's insecurity and there's certainly job insecurity. And, you know, like they're getting rejected all the time too. I've talked with a director a few years ago who was really just not very secure in his journey. And I think it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. We've talked to casting directors about their mm-hmm. trying to get jobs just like actors are. It's all over the place. Maybe actors have it. It's more acute than other than other professions maybe, mm-hmm. but, but it's not like we are less than because we get rejected so much. <laughs> I don't know. It's we good just to get rejected that, in know? our bikinis. That's all. Well, <laughs> I rarely get rejected in my bikini. Yeah. <laughs> Been going wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Gary, we've been doing it wrong the whole time. Yeah, we gotta get our bikinis going. I'm in my bikini right now. I feel good. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, see, that's it's all about the bikini. We'll be posting a picture of now. I've crossed the line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we got to get the intimacy coordinator in here. Bikini's fine. It's when you get to a mankini that's when the problem starts. Yeah. Uh, this has been really fun, Sean. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Thanks and for having me. Your... I'm sorry if I, I just blabbed for almost two hours. I apologize. We, we you want you to blab me. for yeah. two hours. Yeah. It's all good stuff. So happy to have you. Um, if people, Sean, want to follow you on social media, do you – so I know that you're on Twitter. I, so what's Why? Your... Why would you why would you do that? <laughs> I am at Sean E. Crouch, S-E-A-N-E-C-R-O-U-C-H, Sean E. Mm-hmm. But I don't really, you know, there's no reason to. I like watching your stuff. You and, and Carlos have a have Yeah, we a, just mess with each other. And you too. Yeah, I have a thing where you, you mess want to with see each us other. messing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Carlos <laughs> is another I mean, that's one of the things about Sean though, you know, like you how many people that came up in your rooms are now running their own shows and, and going out on pitches and, and selling shows of their own. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the most, Alyssa, like I, I hope Carlos, that's, like, that's, that's my legacy. That's, that's what yeah. I want more than anything is to have 20 showrunners out there who, you know, were assistants to me at some point that that's my dream. That's a great thing. Andrea, what about you? Where could people follow you? You can find me on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 or on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And Gary. Yes, at GaryCondes.com. That's my website, GaryCondes.com. If you want to drop me an email or on social media at GaryCondes, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the Holy Trinity. And I am at Brian Casp on Instagram and Twitter. And I want followers. So you don't have to go look at Sean's page, but definitely come and check me out. So that's it from us. I hope that everyone out there stays healthy and stays creative. And check out, if you're feeling a malaise, check out getting into some kind of class or, you know, it doesn't have to be an acting class. Get into anything. Do a, do an online pottery class or something like that. I don't know. Gardening. I'm about to restart my garden, you guys. It's been almost a year since. Oh, I remember since your garden gardening. from last year. I'm about to start it on the balcony. I'll what? post some pictures. So, yeah, until next week, take care. Thanks very much, folks. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. 